You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Interstate Batteries offers a wide variety of batteries for your everyday needs. Stop into one of their thousands of retail locations and talk with a battery specialist about batteries for your truck, trail cameras, and even those weird batteries for your rangefinder. Interstate Batteries even offers cell phone repair in certain locations. For more information, visit interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This is the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you by Outdoor Class and in partner with 2% for Conservation. Outdoor Class is the new single source of premium outdoor education from trusted, knowledgeable experts. For hunters committed to improving their skills, Outdoor Class is the only subscription-based e-learning platform that provides unlimited access to video lessons from the world's most respected experts covering topics across a hunter's entire journey. Learn from industry leaders like Corey Jacobson, Randy Newberg, Remy Warren, and other prominent personalities and organizations. Sign up today and use code AVERAGE to save 20%. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for Conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies, breweries, Contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their communities for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Happy Wednesday. You are listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Uh, today on the podcast, I am joined by Mike Schmillen, and Mike is the owner and founder of 2% Certified River City Tile and Stone. Uh, River City Tile and Stone uh, is located in the greater Twin Cities area uh, in Minnesota, and uh, you know, Mike and I uh, covered a lot in this conversation. We got to talk about uh, family and getting them outdoors. Um, you know, we spent a, a good amount of time talking about, you know, why Mike, um, you know, is is so committed to, to conservation and giving back and, you know, being in the tile and stone business. Um, you know, he, he goes on to explain how, you know, a lot of the projects and things that he's working on are a lot of new construction builds and things like that. And obviously, you know, we all know that with, um, you know, with new, new builds and new construction, uh, especially, uh, in the residential, uh, side of the house that, um, you know, obviously we're probably, um, taking away area, uh, areas where wildlife, uh, you know, previously lived. Um, Mike certainly understands that. Um, and, you know, doing the right thing um, for him, uh, for his company and his eyes is, um, you know, doing their part to give back to, to wildlife and conservation. Um, he's trying, you know, we kind of talk about it that it's really kind of trying to, to offset, um, you know, as best as possible, uh, the results of, um, you know, of uh, expanding, um, homes and things like that. So not only that, um, Mike gets to, to tell us a really cool story about a project he was involved in last year out in Montana, how he took a crew of guys out there and some work that they did out there, uh, as well as some projects, um, kind of the second half of uh, that project that they, they worked on last year as well, some other stuff and, and just some other really cool projects uh, and things that uh, Mike is involved with um, and helping other um you know, helping the younger generation uh, get involved in, in conservation and, and really helping them uh, kind of see through uh, to a dream, you know, see through a dream that, uh, you know, some some young people have to, you know, become wildlife biologists to work in conservation and to try to, you know, continue, um, you know, from a, a scientific standpoint, backing up a lot of uh, this this work that, um, you know, guys like like Mike and I are trying to do on the ground and, and fight the good fight. So, uh, really fun conversation. Um, you know, Mike was a guy that I told him when we got done recording that it was probably, you know, we probably could have talked easily for another, you know, hour or so, but, uh, I definitely wanted to be respectful of his time. So episode 107, Mike Schmillen, uh, enjoy everyone. Uh, today's episode is going to be brought to you by my friends over at Go Hunt. Um, if you have not already, um, sign up to become a GoHunt Insider uh, and all the, the benefits and everything that come along with that, uh, draw odds, strategy, um, you know, their mapping system, uh, just a ton of great stuff. GoHunt uh, really has everything um, that a hunter is going to need from really the beginning to the end of, you know, the process. Um, they just recently launched their Explore membership, um, which is a super cool way you're going to get all 50 states for $50 a year. Um, and there's no other platform out there like that. So if you use code AVERAGE at checkout uh, and you sign up to become an insider, you're going to get $50 in points to use in the gear shop. And if you use the code AVERAGE uh, to become an, uh, to sign up for the Explore membership, you're going to get $20 uh, and points to use towards the gear shop as well. So check them out, gohunt.com. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. 
Thanks, Marcus. Looking forward to it. Yeah, no, I we I mentioned it uh, prior to actually starting to record here, but I think we've been in contact for shoot close to a year now, or 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 thereabouts. And uh, I know our schedules haven't uh, always aligned. I mean, between work and and families, like you mentioned, uh, it can be tough even to just set aside forty five minutes to an hour. But uh, I'm glad we're finally able to do this. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, Mike, before we get into into River City and everything that you have going on. Tell me a bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am a, uh, a business owner, like you mentioned, a 2% certified business. Um, I am a, a husband, a father. I've got a little seven-year-old that uh, keeps me quite busy along with everything else. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we enjoy the outdoors, of course, um, kind of focus a lot of our attention outside of our, our work lives on that. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's been a, a hectic, busy, but very fulfilling uh, life here in Minnesota. Yeah, I know. Uh, I have a five year old daughter, so I I certainly uh, understand the the hectic, chaotic schedule uh, that come with with young children. Um, I mean, especially if they're involved in any type of extracurriculars, right? I mean, it's you know soccer or dance or softball or gymnastics or I mean the list goes on and on for all the different things that uh, kids can get into these days yeah and it actually gets a little more difficult when school gets out I actually just got back from uh, my daughter's first junior golf lesson here this morning so oh, nice. um, it, it encroaches on the work week during the day a little bit as well but it's all it's so much fun um, and and again, we're, we're, we're very outdoor kind of oriented, but that's not just hunting and fishing. That's also, you know, it's, it's golf, it's going on walks, it's playing soccer, it, it's uh, all these kinds of things. And it's, it's just so much fun. And as you know, with a five-year-old, uh, having children and having active children is, it, it's, it's really the best part of, it's, it's the best part of my life, certainly. And uh, it's, it's just very fulfilling. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's funny that you mentioned that you just had that golf lesson this morning. I just, uh, my daughter had gymnastics this morning, so I had to run her there. And, you know, you're there for an hour, so you're trying to get stuff done on your phone as much as you can and still, you know, paying attention to, to what she's doing because every time I look up, she's, you know, waving from her class and everything. And then have to get her over to um, her grandma's house so that uh, I can have a little bit of peace and quiet to report the, or excuse me, record the podcast. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's a lot of going, 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 but it's, you know, I, I tend to forget how I was as a kid, right? I mean, like you, you mentioned the outdoors and just, you know, even if it's, you know, especially during the summer, um, when you're trying to get some work done or something, it's like, dad, let's go outside. Let's go for a walk. Let's go for a bike ride. And, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking all this stuff that I need to get done, but I've got to remember that, you know, like these these are the things that I did as a kid and that I love to do so much. So like I, I would feel terrible if I was depriving them of, you know, those same simple joys of, of going for a walk, of, of going to the park for, for an hour or something like that. So I've got to certainly be mindful of those things. Yeah, it would be very unfortunate to let your work life or, you know, those important adult things get in the way of that. You've got to schedule some time for it and, and just you have to make it a priority. Uh, otherwise it, it would be very easy to get swallowed up in what's uh, right in front of you and feels like it's more important. But I think when you look back on your, your weeks or your months or your years, you're going to find out that uh, 
taking the kid to junior golf was probably a lot more important than getting that bid done. Yeah. And I mean, the work, the jobs, you know, emails, I mean, those things are going to be there. If it, if it's an extra hour before you can respond or anything, uh, you know, it's, it's, the world is not going to stop. Right. And that's sometimes, um, it, it, at, I know it, it certainly, uh, can be difficult, but you're absolutely right. Um, to, to not let those kids miss out on that and to soak that all in because every day they get older and they get a bit more independent and pretty soon they're driving themselves to golf practice or to gymnastics and it's like, where did time go? You got it. You got it. So before we kind of get into, into you know, some more about the River City and everything, so tell me about, you know, what did the outdoors look like to you growing up, um, you know, there in Minnesota? Yeah, great question. So, um, a very broad, uh, I guess, very broad answer to that question. So, um, we, you know, in the, in the summer times, we, it's normal kid stuff, right? We're building forts, we're, uh, running around on our bikes. We're, you know, running down to the, to the fishing pond and, and, and doing that and, and catching tadpoles and digging up worms to, to use as bait. And we're doing all that kind of stuff. Um, I got uh, introduced, through both of my parents, much like, uh, much like probably everyone else. Um, my mom is not a, a hunter or a fisher. Um, but she is very, and she was very, is very active in outdoor recreation, uh, in outdoor, you know, athletics as well. So golf is, uh, was very, very important to her is very important to her. She's actually the, the girl's golf coach. Um, and uh, tennis, um, going to parks, family vacations at the lake, uh, fishing, cross-country skiing in the winter, stuff like that was all things that kind of my mom was was uh, introducing us to and, and nurturing for us. And then um, my dad um, is actually was kind of the opposite, but very, very involved in the outdoors, but uh, very avid in, in hunting, very avid in very, very avid in, in fishing and, uh, and avid in some conservation organizations as well. So that kind of got me, got me going on things. Yeah. It's, uh, that seems like such a, a prototypical kind of Midwestern upbringing. I mean, I'm in Michigan here and all the things that you were just describing is, is so, so similar to, to my upbringing, right? I mean, you know, sports played a, a big part in gosh, my whole life and, you know, even through college, but, you know, when I was younger, and especially like in the summer, it's, you know, growing up in a, in a rural community, you know, I could hop on my bike and two or three minute bike ride, I could be into a, you know, good patch of woods that, yeah, me and my buddies, we'd build forts, we'd make trails, you know, you just, you do, you know, young kid stuff. And, you know, it's, there's no cell phones. I don't even think I owned a watch. So, you know, my parents are like, you know, just come home when, when it starts to get dark or when you think it's time for, for, for dinner or something like that. And if not, you know, know, they have a rough idea where I'm at. They'll, you know, drive up and down these back roads and, you know, kind of roll down the window and holler for me or something like that. Assuming I'm not, you know, way back in the woods and, you know, you hop on your bike and ride home and get up and do it again the next day. Yeah. That's a, it's a little slice of Americana there that, uh, I, I cherished growing up uh, very similar to, to what you just laid out. And uh, you try to get uh, get kids these days as much of that as possible because it really, those are great memories, of course. And um, 
we've got to be a little more careful now. Um, and there's a lot, it's a, it's a more complicated, um, thing to, to achieve, but we, you know, try to get as much of that in as you can for the kids. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I even see it like in the neighborhood that I live in where, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a wide variety of, of ages as far as kids go in, in this neighborhood, but you always see people riding bikes. You know, there's, um, the, the neighbor who lives directly next door to me has, uh, has three young boys. So, I mean, my daughter's laying in bed last night and trying to go to sleep and they're outside, you know, raising hell and, you know, doing kid stuff, nothing bad or anything, but playing baseball, hooting and hollering and, you know, all this other stuff. And I'm like, this is what I, I longed for, uh, as a kid. And this is what I'm hoping that I'm able to give them as, as they get older. And, you know, you're right. The, the times have certainly changed from when we were kids and, uh, the freedom I think that we had as kids, it's not the same for, for our kids now. And you certainly have to be, uh, much more aware of your surroundings and things like that, because you see, you know, so many awful and tragic things in the news, uh, and online anymore that you're certainly more cognizant of, of where your kid's at, as opposed to, you know, when we were kids, it was like, yeah, just go play in the woods, right? See you at dinner time. And, you know, four or five hours would go by without any type of communication and you show up and, you know, no harm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it is more difficult now, and I don't think it's the same, but it is an opportunity for parents um, to, to, to get maybe a little bit more involved um, with kids and, and your kids' as friends. And, you know, maybe it's taking, taking groups out um, to, you know, a, a piece of woods instead of letting those kids, you know, bike halfway across town um just because uh, some of the these nowadays but uh yeah no it, it's uh yeah it's 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 super important yeah so you said that you, um while your your mother wasn't um uh big into hunting or into angling but your dad was certainly much more avid what type of traditions um did you guys have growing up in terms of you know more on the hunting and the angling side was there like deer camp or like fishing camp in the summer or stuff like that Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, my parents divorced when I was fairly young. So we, we split time between the two and, uh, the times that we were with my dad, we spent a lot of them at my grandma's lake home. I actually had, um, my mom's grandma and my dad's grandma had cabins on the same lake. So we were around there quite a bit. Um, but, uh, spent a lot of time there. We, um, we were, doing a lot of fishing um we we hunted squirrels we hunted rabbits we hunted ducks when we were you know i think we started hunting ducks when we were about eight years old so it, it was uh it was a, a young introduction as far as that goes we did a lot of um firearm safety stuff um you know with with dad and then the fishing stuff was was a lot of fun because we would go for more extended time frames in the summer to you know, it might be to Leech Lake or, or one of the, you know, big lakes, uh, in Minnesota, we've got many, but there's some fairly popular ones and we've got a lot of memories of camping on lakes and, uh, and getting into, getting into different, uh, you know, different, different species and, and learning about them. And, uh, my dad was actually very involved in Muskies Incorporated, which is very big here in the upper Midwest. Um, it's, uh, it is an organization that is designed around muskies, which are, um, you know, low density fish that actually needs quite a bit of, it, it needs quite a bit of help. 
Um, so my dad got very involved with them, um, and I got kind of the musky bug at a very young age. So that was uh, that was something that was really probably more so than I than I even know was was uh, something that built a foundation in me for wanting to to get into to get into uh, uh, conservation. So, and the other part of that was Ducks Unlimited. My grandpa was um, ran a chapter of Ducks Unlimited. My dad was very involved in in a chapter, and I am as well now too. And duck hunting was kind of the other thing that was was very uh, popular with our family, and still is, and something we enjoy very much. Yeah, duck hunting. I, I did a lot of it when I was younger. Um, my dad was yeah big into into duck hunting, and uh, was a member of Ducks Unlimited as well. And I remember, I don't know if it was just because, you know, the kind of, he had everything, right? He had the decoys. We had a lab that was just an amazing retriever. I mean, that, that dog was, his name was Champ, but he, he really was a champ. But it was, you know, obviously there's the, the firearm and and the firearm safety aspect of it, but it was fairly easy, um, you know, at a young age to, to get a kid involved into duck hunting, right? Because, you know, the, you don't have to, you know, sit still all the time or be quiet all the time unless there's obviously, you know, birds that are, are on their way or on their way in or anything like that. So it's you can kind of talk them through the process of, you know, the spread of the decoys, you know, the calling that you're doing, um, you know, and obviously if you get some birds down, you can have the conversations about, you know, what, you know, what type of bird it is or what, to, you know, what type of duck it is and everything like that. So it's uh, it's a much more interactive um endeavor i guess than something like like whitetail hunting right where it's be quiet be still and you know all these things where you don't really get a a chance to do a lot of the explaining during the process or while it's happening it absolutely is and and you brought up whitetail hunting and i think that's a really popular way to get kids into into the outdoors and into hunting specifically but but circling back to to duck hunting or uh even small game uh, but especially duck hunting for us, you, you know, you can you can have fun out there. Bring, have your kid bring a BB gun with, um, or a toy gun with, if they're too young to, you know, to use a to use a shotgun, and they can be a part of that that whole thing. And it's it's waking up in the morning. It's you, you know, your dad pours a cup of coffee and he pours you a cup of hot cocoa, and you're you know sitting there rubbing your hands waiting for that first flock to come in. Those are great memories. And, uh, it, it's, it's something that like, like you said, it's interactive. Um, there's typically going to be some action kind of depends a little bit on where you are, um, with flyways changing some, but, uh, it, it's, it's definitely a, a fun outing. It doesn't need to be super high pressure and it doesn't need to be real long either. So yeah, it's really great. Um, and it's, it's something that, um, I'm probably a lot like uh, many many other people where you you do it a lot when you're younger, and then you might migrate into some some big game, or you might get into some fishing. Life might get you know it, it caught up with work and some other things. But I've got a seven year old girl right now. She is stoked for when she can go duck hunting with me. So we're going to be transitioning a little bit more back into to some bird hunting as she gets older and older here. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think bird hunting in general is like that, right? Whether it's upland, it's waterfowl, um, it's a, it's a great introduction. It's a lot of fun. 
And when you were kind of talking about some of those like early morning stories or routines for for duck hunting, it it certainly made me think back to when I was a kid, right? I mean, I remember one of my first times out duck hunting, you know, I mean, it's, there's like this almost immediate anticipation, right? Because if you think about like deer hunting, and I mean, sometimes it certainly happens very quick, right? Deer walks in maybe somewhere where you weren't ready for it. And next thing you know, you got to make a move and, you know, the whole sequence could take a matter of, you know, a minute or less. You know, with duck hunting, you're calling, you see the birds start to work in, you see them, you know, start to, you know, eye the decoys and everything like that. And then it's like, wait for it, wait for it. And then it's like now, right? They're they're within range, they're within distance. But I remember one of the first times, um, you know, just getting too anxious, you know, and start sky busting at these birds. And then, you know, everyone starts shooting and then, you know, everything kind of calms down. And my dad looks at me, he's like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, they were nowhere near ready or or nowhere near close enough to start shooting. I was like, sorry, like I I got excited. I got anxious. Right. But I mean, that's that's the beauty of it. It's a learning experience. And you know that that unlike deer hunting, where it's probably if you if you rush a shot, you you know, you miss the the animal. That might be your likely your only opportunity that day uh, because woods is probably going to blow up, especially if you've got multiple deer kind of in front of you. But with that, you know, there's probably going to be another opportunity. So it's it's certainly uh, brought back some fond memories. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the outdoors, you kind of touched on it just a second ago. Was it something that, you know, once you got introduced to it, it was just something that you always did? Or was there a point in life, whether it was high school or college or, you know, maybe when you uh, had a younger family where you kind of got away from it, time just didn't really allow for you to do it as much as you like? Or have you been pretty fortunate to, to be able to stick to it, you know, pretty much throughout your life? I've been pretty fortunate. I, I've definitely stuck with it throughout my whole life, um, whether that be um fishing and it it went in phases, right? I was, uh, I got very into, um, walleye fishing and musky fishing for a stretch there. And, and that, that can be all consuming. Um, I, uh, but I've always, I've always hunted some, um, throughout everything. And I, and I, I certainly, uh, certainly, take advantage of every opportunity I can get now. Um, I would say there was maybe a time in uh, my teenage years when it was a little bit less, but I think that's pretty normal. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's been, it's been fairly steady for me, certainly. Yeah. Walleye fishing. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I mean, I feel like I've tasted or tried uh, as as many freshwater fish as I can probably name, and there's nothing to me, uh, in my opinion, there's not a better fish to eat than walleye. Yeah, so we grew up, uh, and you, I would say you're you're correct. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, I mean, we've enjoyed you know fish fries and preparing fish in different ways um forever as long as i can remember of course and i mean honestly they all taste a little bit different um northerns um prepared properly uh filleted properly which is a whole nother uh oh yeah whole nother dish as it were but uh but done properly are extremely good and uh even even some of those y bones i mean i know you're familiar with that but those, uh, you know, pickle those parts of it and fry up the rest. Um, they're delicious. Um, panfish, we were up at the cabin and, uh, 
you know, kept, uh, kept enough for a meal, um, last weekend, my daughter and I, and a couple of her friends, um, just, you know, a, a bunch of sunnies and a couple of crappies. So yeah, it's, uh, it's great, but yeah, walleyes, we're blessed here in, in Minnesota, of course, and Wisconsin and Michigan as well. Um, there's, uh, we're kind of at the walleye epicenter here in the upper Midwest. So it's nice to have access to, to the premium, uh, fish flesh. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, like I said, growing up in a in a in a rural town uh, in northern Lower Michigan, we had um, two lakes within five minutes of me uh, that had great walleye fishing, especially once uh, the spring came and and really into the summer. Um, and as I got older, my dad and my uncle got really big into walleye fishing. My my uh, parents had moved to the Upper Peninsula uh, right after I graduated high school, and walleye fishing was one of those things that my dad just, you know, dove headfirst into. And he spent every weekend down on Little Bay to Knock and Big Bay to Knock down there. And I mean, he had that down to a science. I mean, he would bring my mom along just so he had two extra rods because he knew he could catch the fish. And it's, uh, in hindsight, right. It's like, gosh, like there was, I had access and believe me, I did a, a ton of walleye fishing when I was young. But then you get older, I don't have a boat, right? And I'm, you know, now three hours away from where I grew up. And it's like, man, I wish I was there so I could just slide out after work or get up on a Saturday morning and, and go, you know, catch a limit of walleyes. And then, you know, you're set for a little bit. And yeah, it's, it's things like those that, uh, that I really miss about being um, in the area where I grew up. Yeah, and it, it is, it is definitely, um, definitely important to be in the in the right areas so there's there's a lot of pressure where we are in the twin cities here um in the metro area there's quite a bit of fishing pressure you can you can find walleyes but you've got to put your time in um but yeah you you get uh you get out west or or, uh or up north where we are here or over in wisconsin um yeah there's a lot of uh, a lot of hidden gems where it's it's nice to be able to get in and grab a limit of walleyes yeah so do you ever make it up to the Boundary Waters at all, being there in Minnesota? Yeah, you know what? I've only been up there a couple of times. It's been a topic of discussion um, lately, actually, with when to get the kids up there. And that's going to turn into a more regular trip for us because it's so close. It's so remote. It's so peaceful. There's really, there's really very little like it. Um, you know, we don't have large tracts of public land here in Minnesota. Um, it's not like, you know, out West where, where you've got, uh, you know, millions of acres of, of public land that you can, that you can access and use, um, and, and find solitude and, uh, get away from the folks. Um, for us, that's kind of what we've got. We've got, we've got some tracts of land and everything, but the boundary waters is, is really our version of that. And, with the uh, no motorized, you know, boats in there and the uh, the continuous waterways, it's it's super unique and uh, it's really something that that everyone needs to experience. It's it's been um, it's been north of ten years since I've been there actually, um, which is which is kind of a shame being as close <laughs> as we are. It's something that's uh, it's on the radar um, and. Uh, as, as my daughter gets a little bit older, we're going to be, we're going to be making quite a few trips up there. So, 
Yeah, that's one of the places where uh, I've not been, but it, it's certainly on the list of, of places to visit. And I think you make a good point. When my kids get a little bit older, and I think they can appreciate the, the solitude of it and the pristine nature uh, of the Boundary Waters is when I would like to take them. Um, because, you know, we did a, a kind of a Western road trip uh, two summers ago. And, you know, we saw, I think, five different national parks and did a bunch of hiking. And for for my wife and I, we saw a lot of really cool things. In some places I had been before, but she had not. Um, and they certainly enjoyed it. I mean, we uh, we rented an RV when we did it. So we were just like KOA to KOA, you know, from Michigan yeah. to Montana, down to Utah, into Colorado, and then home. And, you know, what they talk about is, oh, do you remember that campground that had the pool? Like, that was so much fun. It's like... Yeah, it it was fun. It was a nice break, but like, what about all like the you know the cool rock features and stuff that we saw, like arches and 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 down in Moab and you know the waterfalls we saw in Montana. She's like, yeah, that that was cool. It's like I, I wanted to be able to have a bit uh, of a deeper appreciation for you know really the beauty of our public lands and, and these monuments and and the access that they have to them uh, at any given time. You know, it would be interesting to do that same trip or a similar trip, maybe, um, you know, every three years or something like that. As they get older, they're going to appreciate different parts of the trip. And you can still, you know, they've still got those memories, the memories that, you know, at at ages, you know, before they're five years old are going to be the pool and the campground and the s'mores and, and all that fun stuff. But yeah, I mean, to develop, uh, to develop more uh, memories for them and, and kind of see what they, what they get into uh, would be, would be very interesting. We took a lot. So my mom was a school teacher and we took a lot of trips out West. Um, We had family in in California. uh, So we would do road trips out there and then stop at parks um, along the way. And we have got some of the greatest memories. I remember (laughs) being in, glacier and um in the middle i think it was in july and uh we drove up through that way and back down and uh i remember having snowball fights yeah in july you know and it was the coolest thing in the world we were familiar with snow in minnesota of course but it was 90 degrees when we left there and we're having snowball fights uh in glacier in july and it's just it's just a wonderful memory um so yeah, those doing those trips, um, whether that be the Boundary Waters or, or out west or whatever we can do to enjoy some of these some of these lands that we're blessed with is really important. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. <clears throat> so I want to shift a little bit here. So tell me about uh, River City Tile and Stone, the business that you own. Yeah, so um, River City is a it's a again a tile tile business so we install um ceramic tile porcelain uh marble natural stones um in uh housing so it's residential most of our clientele is kind of on the uh the the higher end um new construction and remodeling business so we work with builders in the area um and uh we'll help them through the process of of with their homeowners of picking out some tiles and uh, giving advice on what they should put in in different areas of their homes and then uh, kind of working through all that and then installing it. So we are a a subcontractor. We don't do a lot of of retail work with, you know, homeowners direct. It's mostly again through builders 
uh, custom home builders and remodelers. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a great business. It's, um, it's very busy. Uh, we are in a, um, an interesting time this year with inflation and gas prices, uh, where they are in a little bit of a, a slowdown in, in new construction permits being pulled, but we're still very, very busy and, uh, really enjoy, really enjoy what we do. It's a, it's a fun business. We've got a really fun group of employees. We've got a really fun group of customers. So it's, uh, it's all in all been, been a blessing and a really, uh, a, a really, a really fun career for me. Yeah. So is Minnesota kind of experiencing uh, the same thing? I mean, I'm sure, you know, obviously the housing market and the new construction seems to be booming really all over the country. Is it the same way in Minnesota? I mean, I live, um, my, my wife and I built, you know, the, the quote unquote dream home. Um, and by that, I mean, it was a, a new subdivision, but we got to pick everything out right in the home and whatnot. And, you know, I just, our subdivision has, you know, it was like a two phase thing. I think the first phase was, uh, something like 45, 46 homes. And then the second phase was an additional like 75. Um, it's just nearing completion now. And I mean, I think about, you know, all the tile work that's in our home and then, you know, likely the other, you know, 125 homes that are, or 135 homes that are here as well. I mean, that's got to be, you know, three, four years worth of work right there, assuming that, you know, it's the same builder throughout our entire subdivision that they're likely using the the same subcontractors, assuming that there's availability and they're not getting too bogged down. I mean, is that what you guys are experiencing out there as well? It is. Yeah, it's, it's been, honestly, it's been booming for years um, since the, uh, you know, economy uh in 2008 2009 when things shifted dramatically um it's been a it's been a steady climb upward since then and the last couple of years have been have been very very busy for us so i think we're seeing a little bit of a market correction um with uh we i i keep keep an eye on how many permits are being pulled and and what our builders are getting for sales and it seems like the last few months there's been a little bit of a slowdown but that's a that's a healthy slowdown. It's not drastic. It's kind of um, going to help us, I think, with some supply chain issues. It's going to help us with some staffing issues. So we're kind of looking looking at that as a positive little maybe minor slowdown in the housing market here in Minneapolis. And I think that you're going to see the same thing throughout the country. Yeah, allow you to catch your breath a little bit and, and get your bearings, so to speak, from, from running <laughs> around and trying to keep up with the demand. You bet. You bet. So, so, I was just going to say, how was it that you got into the, the tile and stone business? Yeah, so I was in material sales um, up until about a, a dozen years ago or so. And then uh, this, uh, this business that I own was actually a family business on my wife's side. Um, I was approached... Um, with my contacts and knowledge in the the building industry and everything to kind of try to come aboard and and take, uh, you know, take, take ownership in the company and and see where we could take it. And that's kind of how I got my, my uh, feet wet and kind of took it from there. So I was happy to owning a business is very difficult, but it offers you a lot of flexibility and offers you a lot of potential. It offers you, um, 
a much wider view and scope of of how you want to live your your work life and that's been very beneficial two percent for conservation is a great example of that that's not something that if you're working for a big material supply center you're not going to have a say in whether or not your company is going to get two percent certified or if you're going to be donating one percent of your time or one percent of your your revenue as a business owner those are the kinds of things that you that you get to um that you get to enjoy there's plenty of stress that goes along with it as well <laughs> but uh, it's, uh it's, as usual um but it certainly is is fulfilling and it's it's a great life it really is yeah i think that you know with the whole shift of really the workforce over the past, you know, gosh, what, three years now, two and a half years, three years, whatever, since since COVID started, um, that mm-hmm. people are putting much more of an emphasis on that work-life balance. And I think companies are realizing it, too, um, with, you know, the working remote or, or now becoming more of a hybrid position that people are still getting their work done, even if they're working at home. Right. Or <clears throat> excuse me. You know, if if you're working for a company, an organization, whatever, and you've been working from home, I mean, the likelihood that, you know, from eight to five, let's say that you're sitting at your at your desk in your office or at the kitchen table or whatever it is and and working, you know, straight through like maybe you would if you were in the office uh, is pretty unlikely, especially with young kids at home, which tons of family have young kids or when there was, uh, you know, the virtual learning. So the kids were home from school. Um, so you have to throw that element in there, but people are still getting their work done. And honestly, they're being way more efficient with their time because they know that, you know, they've got to take the kids to practice or they've got to get them lunch or, you know, put them down for a nap or whatever the case is. So I think that with that, the everyone has has shifted or or is trying to shift to to finding that balance. Right. It's I think it's for a lot of people. Well, a lot of people. For myself, it's become way less about the money and more about the time that I'm able to spend with my family, the time that I'm able to spend doing the things outside of work that I enjoy. And, you know, the money's going to come and go. But, you know, the the time that we have with family and, you know, out hunting or, or camping, I mean, that's those are the things that are limited. And those are the things that I think people have put uh, or started to put a lot more of an emphasis back on. Yeah, and, and and how important is that? I mean, you you can't uh, you can't go through your life saving every penny that you can, uh, hoping to retire at sixty five, and uh, go climb a, a mountain and chase bighorn sheep. It's not going to happen. Um, you know, you've got to uh, take advantage of your life, and you know, you, you certainly want to you want to do your best in your career and. Um, you know, I've got employees that I, I, I want to, to try their hardest and, and, and work as hard as they can when they're working. But I, I also uh, promote very heavily that they are spending spending time, you know, doing what they what they love to do and making sure that they're taking enough time off, um, taking breaks, uh, work, flexible work um, times and environments whenever possible. So things like that are, are are very important and it's definitely something that we promote here um, because that balance is essential uh, i don't think that uh you can you can push people too hard because um, they got to be happy they've, they've got to be happy um in their life and they're going to be a lot better at work if they're happy in their life 
Yeah, I mean, that was going to be kind of my next statement was how much better of an employee and a worker they are when, you know, they they don't feel that constant stress and constant pressure to perform at work. Um, and they're they're able to, you know, go on vacation for a week and not have to worry about emails or phone calls coming in. You know, they can, you know, really disconnect and, and enjoy that time and come back refreshed and ready to, you know, hit the grind again. And yeah, happy employees uh, make the best employees. That's for sure. Yeah, it's huge. And we, like I said, we that heavily. And I try to get somebody's going to be on vacation. Please do not answer your phone. Um, put an out of office on. Have them call me. Whatever it might be, because yeah, that's that's uh, that is one of the, the key, keys to success. Yeah. So you kind of mentioned it um, with you know, the, the perks of, of owning your own business in terms of, you know, the flexibility to, to give back and, and to get involved. So how does conservation um, tie into, into your business, into your company? Yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting um, dichotomy. We've got uh, a business here that is capitalizing um, on uh progress right so uh, what you would call so housing uh, we're build our customers are buying buying land and developing and we're buying they're buying chunks of of property that were once habitat for an animal uh, of uh, you know hundreds of animals and birds and, and fish and everything else and they're developing it right so that's going to happen we um we are a, a subcontractor we our, our business involves that and there's no way around it um so one of the one of the things that we look at is let's let's make sure that we're doing something that's going to be the um you know the 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 thing that that, that helps us um get 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 through that and be able to look at what we do and say, yeah, we're 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 making money, we're doing all this, but we're also putting some something back here. We're we're donating some funds to um, Ducks Unlimited for habitat work. We're we're you know donating some some money to Muskies Incorporated or whoever it might be, and uh, making sure that we've got some funds that are channeling out, um, so that we're giving back a little bit. And um, a lot of that is is just us as a business making sure that we um, can feel good about what we're doing and not that, not that what we do is negative. It's sounding that way, but we, we, uh, we definitely want to make sure we're doing our part and it's important to me. And, you know, as a business owner, a lot of what's important to you is going to filter down through your employees, but it's important to a lot of our employees too. And, and many of them uh, like to get involved in, uh, you, you know, where we're, where we're uh, spending our, our time and money. And uh, that's, uh, it's like I said, it's very important to me and it's important to a lot of our employees that we're, um, we're a company that's not just concerned with our bottom line. We're concerned with our, our, our employees' well-being. We're, we're, we're focused on making sure that we're giving back to, to conservation. We're giving back to, um, you know, organizations that are out there doing the good work. So that's, that's really what it is. We just want to make sure we're, we're doing our part. Yeah. You guys are, um, you know, doing your best to, to offset, 
um, you know, what comes from, you know, just the, the natural um, kind of order of, you know, development and things like that. Because let's say River City, Tile and Stone isn't around, right? There's certainly going to be another Tile and Stone company manufacturer that's, that's going to be doing that work. And the likelihood that they are going to want to try to offset that or give back to conservation is probably not as high. Um, you know, maybe the, the owners of that company didn't grow up in the outdoors, right? They're only looking at the bottom line. So they're just trying to turn and burn with these homes and these projects. And the approach that you guys are taking um, is awesome because you you see, um, you know, inherently what development does to, to wildlife or to, to wild places and things like that. But you're, you, you've recognized that and you're doing anything uh, and everything kind of within your powers as an organization, as a company, um, to mitigate those or to try to give back in other places where you can. And I think that just kind of speaks volumes to not only you, but the entire staff that you guys have there. Well stated, Marcus. That's exactly what it is. And, um, you know, it's interesting, a, a lot of a lot of 2% certified companies and just, I guess, conservation-minded organ, uh, companies are related to a hunting or outdoor recreation space or, um, you know, fishing, um, something like that. We're a contractor. We, we, we really don't have any marketable advantage by being certified. Um, that's not what we're in it for. Um, we certainly um, want people to know that we're doing it. I think that's important as well. And I think it's important for spreading the word. But um, it's not uh, it's not beneficial to us in any other way than it it's the right thing to do. It makes us feel good, and it, it gets it gets our employees and sometimes our customers involved in some of these things. And I think that's really important to make sure that that folks know. Um, you know, if you're looking for something to do on a Saturday morning, take your kids out and you know take go down the trail or go down the river bottoms and pick up some trash. That's a great thing to do with your kids. Who knows what you're going to run into down there. So if we can get people more involved in, in simple things like that, that's another, another huge benefit uh, that I see with it. Yeah. It's, it's, you said it best. It's just, it's doing the right thing. And I would imagine that, you know, with a company uh, of your size that the actual, cause you know, 1% of your, of your time for any business is 21 hours a year, which if you're an individual, you go, okay, you know, that's, that's a, that's a good chunk of time. But, you know, if you break it down to, you know, four or five Saturdays, Saturday mornings throughout the course of a year, like that's not that much time, but you start to throw in, you know, let's say you just take, you know, a group of, of five of your employees and you guys go out for one, one morning. I mean, you've already, you know, well surpassed, the, the 21 hours that's required. And I would imagine that, again, with a company of your size and employees, that you're far exceeding the actual 1% of time that is required by 2%. Uh, yeah, I would imagine that uh, <laughs> it's well into the hundreds. So we'll see where it ends up this year. Uh, we have conversations with Frazier about that and and, uh, and the money part of it as well, of course, every year. But it's, uh, yeah, that's, the 21 hours is, I, it, it, I, I guess I'm maybe speaking a little bit out of turn here, but I think the way that uh, Jared and, and everyone set that up was it's 1% of a, um, 21 hours is 1% of a typical like 40 hour work week for a year yep. um, for employee. 
now that's uh yeah that that's that's certainly a low number i think for any company that's as involved in conservation as as we are um it's it's really easy i mean we probably get that done in the first couple months of the year so yeah that's and it's it's certainly not it's not like a milestone we're trying to reach and patting ourselves on the back we're just trying to do as much as we can yeah and that's you know, from, from anyone who enjoys the outdoors. I mean, that's all you can really ask of, of another outdoorsman or outdoors woman is, is doing all that they can for the outdoors. Right. And, and it's, uh, it's amazing what, you know, if you kind of take all of these small pieces of the puzzle and put them all together, the, 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 kind of grandiose nature of what is accomplished at the end of a year or the end of a project um, is is really impressive. And I think sometimes people, you know, they think about conservation, maybe just from a, an individual standpoint, right? Like they'll say to themselves, you know, what can I do? Well, I can go out and do this. It's like, but then they kind of in the back of their mind, they're thinking, well, that's really not that much, right? And, and Jared has said this, you know, dozens of times to me throughout the, the course of our relationship is, you know, conservation isn't a competition, right? You know, whatever someone does is helping, no matter how big, how small. And, you know, it, it, I say at the end of every podcast, right, like conservation starts with you, whatever your mindset is, whatever you're going out and doing, um, you know, if you're, you know, like you mentioned, picking up trash at a river bottom or at a trailhead or something like that, and your kids are seeing that, there's this huge ripple effect of people who are watching but you don't know, and then maybe next time they stop and pick up trash, and, and it opens a dialogue with, you know, their kids or, or their friends and family, and, you know, it just, it creates, you know, this this wave that just goes far beyond what you could have ever imagined when you were sitting there thinking, well, I'm just one person doing it, what kind of difference am I making? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's it's getting a, a team involved, and then getting that you know get you get some of your employees involved in it. You hope that they are going to teach that to their kids, and then their kids are going to talk to their friends about it, and their friends are going to talk to their parents about it. Pretty soon, you've made a pretty good impact there. Um, and uh, it's not tangible in that sense, but it's uh, it's an impact. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking of kind of gathering a team, um, it's my understanding that you were part of or you brought a team of people with you out to Montana last year. You want to tell me about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a fun project. Um, and we've got some other ones in the works as well. But that, that specifically, actually, we're going to go back out and do this again next month. But uh, yeah, last year um, we were uh, approached there's a, a gentleman um, at the National Wildlife Federation uh, by the name of Simon Bazard, and he, um, and I can't remember where, I think he went to Montana State, but he, um, he created a map of fences in Montana and used GPS collar data from pronghorn to locate areas and pinpoint areas where pronghorn were trying to migrate and hitting a fence. And it's, it's, it's very cool. It's a color coded map. So they've got all these call these collars on these antelope and, and you see where they just keep pounding into this fence and they can't get across it. If you know, if you uh, aren't familiar, I'm sure most people are, but pronghorn don't really jump fence. I've seen, I've seen it happen twice 
in my life where um, I've seen a buck do it and a doe do it, where they'll actually jump a fence. And it takes them a while to figure it out. But almost all of them will not jump a fence. So they have a very hard time crossing. So Simon, um, Simon created this map so that we could pinpoint areas where these animals are trying to, to migrate to, you know, winter grass and, and that kind of thing. And it's, it's super important for them to be able to do that for survival. Um, so they're hitting these fences and, and the, many times these are old fences that don't need to be there. Sometimes they're old fences that have, um, you know, a lot of more old sheep fences. So they're from all the way to the ground up, you know, too high for them to again, be able to jump. Um, and a lot of them have, uh, a lot of them are fences that need to go back up, but there are other ways to build fences that will help, a will help an animal be able to, to uh, cross it. So they'll, they'll oftentimes cross under a fence. Um, they just don't like to go over them. So if there's enough room for them to cross under it, they will do that. Um, so a wildlife friendly fence for a pronghorn is one that is in the range of 16 or so inches for the bottom strand from the ground to the bottom strand. And then what we advocate for is not having barbs on that bottom strand. Um, so, so that's kind of the idea of it is finding these, these locations where they're trying to cross fences, either removing them altogether or removing them and having them replaced um, with a, a wildlife-friendly fence. And uh, it's, it's quite incredible to, to be a part of. Um, on, the, on the actual fence um, construction, when we put new ones up, um, we do that lower strand barbless because when they cross under them, um, pronghorns have uh, fairly thin skin, actually. And uh, the Wildlife Federation's got some some photography of animals that have crossed barbed fences, and it's pretty it's pretty brutal. They can get cut up. They've got chunks of uh, hide missing. Um, we've we've seen some bad infections from it, stuff like that. So definitely a, a cool, a cool project to be a part of and um, definitely a need. It's, it's, it's really important. And there's, I don't know how many miles of fences there that, that either don't need to be there or, or need to be reconstructed. So, um, so the process out there, Simon identifies these areas. A lot of these fences have sagebrush um, uh, grown into them, um, so they're, they're difficult. They're old fences. They're difficult to remove. Um, so there's been several groups that have gone out. Stone Glacier had a, a group out in front of us. Um, Frazier was actually out there uh, right before we were last year, helping to cut some of that sagebrush out, helping to um, actually remove a lot of the wire off the fences. Um, they removed a bunch of the posts for us. We did some of that as well. Um, so th there was, I think, several groups out in front of us. I think there was three of them that were kind of doing some of that legwork up front in a few of these locations. And uh, But what they needed was somebody to go out there and, and finish taking down the fence. And then the, the, the ranchers who who are are using this land whether it be private a lot of it's blm land but they need that fence out of there and they need a new fence put back up and it's not fair to them for it to be a cost 
uh, burden to them, right? right? So they've already up. It's it's a it's a big ask to say, hey, tear that fence down and and you know put a new one back up. This wildlife, <laughs> it's, it's not going to happen, right? And, and you can't blame them for that. These these ranchers are great. They're working with us. Um, they were out on site a couple times last year, um, so so they're great. But it's important that that fence be removed. Um, everything's cleaned up perfectly and uh, a new fence is put back in properly and uh, you know it, it's going to work for them so so what we did um, was kind of finish taking down these sections of fence and then uh, we brought a couple of skid loaders out so I've got uh, I've got some equipment that we use in in my uh, company and uh, I've got a friend who actually owns a another two percent certified business Jack Cooper Custom Meats and he's got a, a skid loader as well so we uh we loaded up a couple of skid loaders and uh, a fence winder, which is a, uh, there's a specific fence winder that uh, it's called a Dakota fence winder. BLM actually ended up buying one after we were out there because they were so impressed by it. Um, but uh, we loaded that equipment up and uh, went out there and were able to make uh, pretty short work of uh, several miles of fence, get it all cleaned up for the, the ranchers, keep everybody happy as far as that goes. We brought a brush mower out, mowed some areas so that we could bring a contractor in. One of the stipulations um, for this specific project was that uh, we, we did have to get a contractor in there to put the new up. I think that was one thing that the rancher wanted. Um, so that's something that we got, uh, that, that Simon ended up getting funded as part of this as well. So. Yeah, a cool project and a unique thing for us to, to have uh, some heavy equipment to be able to use um, to the benefit of these pronghorn if they needed it. Um, winding that up by hand would be a, a, a team of 10 people for a month to do what we were able to wow. do in a, in, in a half a week or, or, or so out there. So pretty, pretty cool project. Uh, again, we're going to go to another section of Southwest Montana here in uh, mid-July and uh, and take out another section so that uh, we can get those migration corridors opened up. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, so <clears throat> when, uh, when Jared uh, was out there uh, just prior to you, I had him and Simon and another gentleman on um, whose name is escaping me. Uh, right now, but they were talking about, yeah, just the project in general. Uh, you did a really good job of, of summarizing what it is. I mean, you kind of gave some detail that I wasn't even fully familiar with or that didn't come out in the first episode. And I just think that, you know, stories like this are, are really what I love about the podcast is, you know, here you are. Yes, you are a 2% certified business, you know, in Minnesota. Um, I don't know. Have you ever even hunted pronghorn sheep before? I have, yeah. I've uh, I've hunted them several times. I've actually got a tag I drew this year as well. So I I've hunted them three times in the past, and this would be my fourth hunt coming up. But it's more the it, it's not just the pronghorn. Um, you've also got I know when Jared was out there the week before we were out, there was a moose calf that was trying to cross the exact fence that we were taking out a week later and could not cross it so there was a uh riparian area that the cow moose was in and the calf was trying to get to 
get to uh, get to that cow and couldn't cross that that uh, that section of fence. So um, it, it's not just the pronghorn. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, wildlife that that uh, take advantage of projects like this. Yeah, and that's the thing that I think some people can tend to get a bit of tunnel vision on when it comes to maybe uh, species specific organizations is they think they're, you know, especially like habitat work uh, that they're doing is, is just for, um, you know, like in this particular case for pronghorn, but the, the benefits that are there for all the other wildlife involved um, just, it's, it's really hard to describe or how it's hard to, to quantify, um, you know, the results that, like you said, from this, from this uh, um, calf moose, that, you know, now it's able to move a bit more freely in there, you know, obviously, you know, things like whitetail and mule deer, I mean, they're much more inclined to, to jump over the fence, but if it's easier for them, um, to, to move about freely in those areas, in those regions, um, you're just going to see the herd, um, you know, flourish. And that's, you know, really, uh, at the end of the day, what, you know, us as, as outdoorsmen or hunters, that that's what we want, right? We want species and, and everything in the area to flourish so that, um, you know, we have, you know, the opportunity to go out and, and pursue them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and habitat work is, is really where that, if you, you know, when you, when you talk about a wide net like that, um, this fence, fence project, for example, you've got, you've got moose, you've got certainly pronghorn. Um, you've also, you know, you mentioned deer, mule deer, white-tailed deer, um, yeah, the the adults have no problem with the fences. The young ones do. Um, right. So it's you know it's it's still important. There's a there's a lot to do with that. And habitat work isn't certainly uh, it, it's very fun. I enjoy it very much. It's not quite as sexy as you know, <laughs> in a helicopter and netting bighorn sheep and testing them for a movie, um and releasing them or relocating, um, but it's arguably just as important, if not more important. And if you're looking at all species, it is more important. Habitat work is huge. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So you said you're going back out there uh, next month. What other type of projects, if you if you feel like sharing those, um, do you kind of have on the docket that, it, that may be kind of similar in nature to what you're doing out there in Montana? Yeah, so we've got a, a couple of cleanups that we're going to be doing locally here. Um, we've been in contact with, uh, the, our DNR, so it's Department of Natural Resources here in Minnesota with some WMA, um, there's a, an adopted WMA program that we're getting involved in. Um, a couple other ones, I've been, uh, working with the Fraternity of Desert Bighorn on doing a guzzler project with them. That's kind of prelim, um, the one we were going to do this year got rescheduled, so we couldn't make it. They scheduled those, so guzzler work is uh, it's intriguing. I've never actually done one, but uh, those are water tanks that are way in the middle of nowhere for desert bighorn sheep, and um, it's critical. They're uh, in a major drought right now down there, and uh, the these water tanks definitely um, – our key to survival for some of the desert bighorns. So they schedule those though. It, it, as you can imagine, it's quite warm down there right now. Yeah. So they, they, yeah, it's January through May, I think. So I've been uh, working with, uh, with those guys on getting some dates figured out for next year. And we'll, we'll get involved in that. 
Um, and then one other thing that, that we're as a company that we've just done is that I'm sending actually one of my employees on a careers in conservation trip that's through the Midwest Wild Sheep Foundation. I'm up on the board of directors for Midwest Wild Sheep, and uh, we've got a program there that's just launched. It's brand new this year, um, and we are flying out people that are in the, say, 17 to 21-year-old kind of range, people that are interested in a career in, in conservation, whether that be through a wildlife, you know, um, organization, government, whatever it might be. If they're interested in getting into that, we want to we want to embrace that. We want to promote that. So um, this program is very very cool. We send uh, I think we're sending four out this year, and we plan to expand it. But um, flying out to Washington, um, they're going to tour Devil's Canyon. They're going to talk to a bunch of biologists out there in Idaho and Oregon and uh, see some cool stuff. And, and uh, the idea is to keep the motivation up, make sure that they're not, uh, you know, changing their career direction <laughs> because we, we want these professionals um, in that and, and doing some cool stuff. So one of my uh, part-time employees, the one we're sending out there, is uh, actually in school. So he's seasonal. He took a semester off, so he's actually working for us. Um, He's been working for us Christmas, but he uh, is going to school for wildlife biology and was perfect candidate. So I'm sending him out. He'll get uh, he'll get paid and everything, and the trip will be all paid for through Midwest. We'll cover some of it through River City, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully he learns a lot. And uh, hopefully, this program that we've got uh, launches into into a, a pretty big deal. So we're we're excited about it. Yeah, no, that's incredible, Mike. And and who knows, maybe that employee, you know, 10, 15 years down the road is, you know, leading, you know, a research project for some species that's, you know, going to change the trajectory of it, you know, as, as time goes on. So to, you know, to have someone to, you know, be able to afford someone the opportunity to, you know, go and, and be a part of that and gain that experience is, is awesome. And, and, you know, those are the things that, I think uh, in the conservation world aren't talked about enough is, you know, the little things behind the scenes that, you know, companies like yours are doing that, you know, at the time may seem small, but, you know, like I said, a decade from now could have a huge impact on, uh, you know, just wildlife in general. And those, those are the success stories that, um, you know, this podcast is all about and, and the things that people need to know, because, you know, maybe someone, um, you know, in the Midwest or there in Minnesota, this, they don't even know about those those programs or those opportunities that are out there. And, and now that they do and now they can get involved. And, you know, it's it's you never know who's going to be listening. Um, so to to share those stories is, is incredible. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And if there is anybody uh, listening to this that's interested in something like that, uh, a young person, uh, have them reach out to me because we'll be doing this annually and it's a great opportunity. And I think it fosters a lot of excitement. Um, it, it gets kids from the upper Midwest to be able to to, to get out and see. I mean, you're going to go take a, a boat up Hell's Canyon. I mean, it's, it's an incredible Experience. There's very few individuals in the world that get to do that, so it's a it's a really cool thing. And for us, it's it's just it's helping to keep their motivation up 
Um, what we don't want is somebody to transfer from wildlife biology to a business degree, right? Let's, let's keep them moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mike, before I let you get out of here and, and get back to work, what, uh, where can people, you know, find you or River City Tile at? Yeah, so we're a Twin Cities-based company. Um, you know, we've got a, our website is uh, River City Tile and Stone, all spelled out, dot com. Um, otherwise, uh, you, you know, you can certainly put my email and and uh, and phone number on the on the show notes. There's no problem with that. And uh, yeah, happy to talk to anybody uh, about anything, certainly work related, or uh, if anybody's interested. Uh, more importantly, in conservation projects in the upper Midwest or, or really anywhere, um, I'm heavily involved in um, some Ducks Unlimited stuff and, and the Wild Sheep Foundation and uh, and in a number of other organizations as well. So if people are looking for opportunities, definitely reach out. We can we can get hooked up with some, some projects and, and uh, some committees and things like that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you again, Mike, and uh, hopefully after – one of these other projects that you have coming up, we can get you back on and kind of hash that out and break that down and talk about your experience with that. I would, uh, I would certainly enjoy that. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Marcus. Appreciate it. Yeah. All right, Mike. Well, uh, take care and, uh, have fun out in Montana next month. Yeah. Thanks a lot. All Bye. Right. All right. Well, thank you again to Mike for taking some time to sit down with me today and, and talk conservation and, uh, everything he has going on with River City Tile and Stone. Uh, I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Outdoor Class, Go Hunt, Stone Glacier, as well as 2% for Conservation. Uh, do me a favor, please be sure to go out and support the brands that support this podcast and help make it possible. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, uh, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org, and over there you're going to see all the certified brands that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where they're going to post only positive conservation-driven content in your feed, so you'll certainly enjoy that. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Thanks for tuning in again this week, everybody. Uh, be sure to check out theaverageconservationist.com, catch up on all previous podcast episodes, as well as uh, grab some merchandise, uh, hats, t-shirts, sweatshirts um, that support conservation in the cause. So until next week, stay safe out there and remember that conservation starts with you.